Hello and welcome to the AdNug podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is a recording from our March 2020 meeting, Serverless.net Core with AWS SAM, presented by Taylor Goodall. And now, over to the presentation. So the idea of the talk is, it's a general primer on developing serverless applications. There is a sprinkle of .NET Core here and there. Uh, all of the examples that I will be using will be referencing some small .NET Core samples. However, I think a lot of it is a primer around using developing applications that are serverless and going from there. So I thought a really good way to, I guess, show some of the struggles that we as developers have had throughout our journey with serverless is to draw some comparisons on traditional web servers. Um, so if anyone cares to, who has worked on a traditional server which you'd have to SSH into, for example? Yep. Excellent. Um, and who has worked with serverless um, architecture before? Cool. So <clears throat> the, the way I see it is they're, you know, they're both very similar in some ways, but there's a lot of differences in between them. Uh, we've been using traditional web servers for a long time now, at least you know a bit over two decades really. And over the last two decades, there's been some really crazy um, ramp ups in how servers work, how fast they run, how much memory they have, and a lot. Uh, whereas something like serverless has only been around really for the public consumption since about 2014. There was an initial release or initial prototype that was created by a company, which I think is pronounced like Zimki. Uh, please fact check me on that though. And they released a concept in about 2006 that unfortunately it wasn't commercially viable. And then around 2014, AWS Lambda was the first commercially viable serverless thing. And I, I think, so it's been about six years now which in the grand scheme of things is still a pretty new technology and we're still learning to work with it where it's best used and how we should apply it in our development environments or sorry, our production environments and I think there's still a lot of challenges that we're going to have to move forward with in the future and I guess that's about a part of the fun when it comes to learning really a new technology um, but for example with something like a traditional server deployment um, where you have a web server that hosts your application, for example, ASP.NET. Um, we basically, one of the big benefits of that is that we've always been able to use local development environments. Um, so if we have the environment, we can set up locally. And this is just simply amazing because we can focus and iterate quickly. We can test things locally, whether it be an ASP.NET application or programming language of your choice. And I think that's something that was really missing when we started looking at serverless as a whole. When I first started looking into it, it, was, it wasn't too long ago really. A lot of it was using, working with a console application, which is inside AWS, which is a great place to get started and kind of understand how it all works together. Um, the thing I noticed is it's really not good especially if you're working on a team and you want to iterate quickly and for every time you 
were to invoke that function, it is going to cost you money eventually because Lambda works on a compute side. So basically, some much smarter people than myself developed some tools to work locally, and they do, so they developed some much much better tools than to develop service applications locally. And the one I'll be mostly covering tonight is App AWS SAM. SAM stands for Service Application Model. And sorry, I've skipped there. So, Service Application Model. And basically, what it is is a boilerplate for scaffolding out service applications. Uh, it's a pretty diverse tool. It's currently supported by AWS, as the name may have given away. And that's the one I decided to go through um, a couple of months ago. I was developing some service applications and I went with this opportunity to use AWS SAM. And AWS SAM is really easy to set up. It works on Windows, Linux and Mac. It's just a matter of how you'd like to install it, what you're working with. And I'm sure if you are using AWS, you can probably set it up inside of their uh, IDE that they provide. Um, you can install it on, I personally use a Mac at home and a Linux work, workbox at work, and they're both installed through. The, the one thing that with Sam is that you do need Docker to be able to run these containers, um, but I wouldn't let that necessarily stop you from using AWS Sam just if you don't have any experience with Docker. AOSM simply um, manages all of the Docker and virtualization for you. It's a matter of having it installed. And when you go to build and invoke your service application, it will support <coughs> the Docker container for you. So <clears throat> there's lots of things that it can do. So for example, if you're going to develop some Python Ambers or Go or .NET Core or even Java, Sam will actually spin it up for you. It's just a matter of providing the runtime, which I haven't, uh, which is in the next slide, which I'll touch on in a moment. Uh, but I think the thing for me is that it really enabled some local development that actually felt like it was a little bit closer to using a local development machine. Uh, I'm sure many of you have used either Vagrant or Docker. Um, or you're using the sp.net runtime server itself. Um, but I really liked the accessibility it provided, and there's lots of things that allowed it to do, which I hadn't really thought too much from a service perspective. Sorry, let me. Uh, I will quickly um, just touch on that there is a couple more solutions for developing service applications. I really don't have much exposure there, so I won't be talking about them, but at the end of the night, if you wish to go home next week, whatever it is, I would recommend you have a look at these solutions as well, because you might find the one works best for you and instead of Sam, which at the end of the day, I think is fine. I think a lot of this will translate across. Um, one of the other ones is the service framework. And .NET actually has some global tools that they have created as part of um, using it with AWS Lambda. AWS, the .NET tools though, um, 
instances of .NET Meetup that I really did not find them very valuable. It was essentially the ability to scaffold out the application, but you couldn't really run the application locally without mocking everything. So for me, that was a part of the reason I also chose AWS, because um, <clears throat> it's first-party support, really, and a lot of what serverless is is going to be vendor lock-in. So in my decision when it came to thinking a lot about it, I realized that I'm probably much better off. If I'm going to have to accept some degree of vendor lock-in, I might as well go with the first-party support. Um, although, I'm, I think I will probably look at other solutions in the future. So creating a, a Hello World serverless hub with SAM is really, really easy. As you can see there, it's, I, I'm a big Terminal fan. For anyone who's using IDE to create their projects, I'm very much sure there is a way to create these projects in Visual Studio or VS Code or even Writer. For me, I always use the terminal. I just find it easier, um, but that's just the way I work. So, <clears throat> for our case, it's pretty simple. Come on to the terminal, sandbag-r.net core 2.1. Uh, some of you might be wondering why it's 2.1 instead of 3.1. Um, as we've just spoken about, there's obviously a few, one major version behind, and <clears throat> that is a part of what we have to consider when developing serverless applications. Because we are not in control of the server, we are simply deploying our code to a service that would then run that backend for us, we need to comply with the runtime that the vendor is using. So um, 2.1 is a long-term support, and be, be mindful of that if you are going to be developing .NET Core applications on AWS. You might find that there's a certain feature in 3 that you really want to use, but it may not be compatible in 2.1, for example. And we need to, I guess, be patient and upgrade when they do come, but it really could be sometime early in 2021 before we see the next upgrade cycle. And I personally don't see that as too much of a problem, and I'll touch on that a little bit later why, but just be wary of that, especially if you are doing things. Um, but when you're testing locally, you have to create the 2.1 application but it's all taken care of you as a part of the doc image. So you can have the SDK 3 installed locally, but you're not gonna have to worry about that um, when you're actually testing location, um, when you're actually doing it locally. I don't have any internet connection, but I'll try to give you a brief um, rundown of creating a new application in SAM. Wait me a second.
Oops, sorry. <laughs> um, so basically, it's really easy to get started, and there's a couple of options you can choose from. Personally, I've mostly gone with option one. It's a pretty standard boilerplate out of the box. However, the community have <coughs> created templates you can use. So I would suggest if you're going to play around with the service app in .NET Core for the first time, I would just go with the quick start templates. The reasoning is it will kind of help demonstrate how the flow is. They're very simple Hello World applications, which I'll show you very shortly of how they work. Uh, but then later on you might want some more diversity, which is then we can go ahead to the marketplace and find some templates, or you might even find yourself writing your own. So <clears throat> I do have this already pre-installed. So I will go through this shortly and just run you through the basic structure. Like I said, there's really not a lot in that, but I think it's a really good starting place when you're working with... with. Oh, yep. Can everyone see that? Yeah, it's really simple. Whenever I'm doing it at this point, I've always just gone with one. Um, but then again, I do encourage you to go out there and look um, and see what else is available because you might find something that's a closer skeleton to what you're trying to achieve, but not to you. And as you can see, I did make an error. I got my versioning for .NET Core wrong, which I do apologize, but it also shows you some of the other runtime environments you can choose. So it's the kind of thing where you there's so many different types that you can develop the service applications with, and it will scaffold that for you through the SAM CLI. Yeah, can I do apologise if people at the back can't hear me. I'm not very good at shouting, but please let me know if I'm not talking loud enough, and I'll try to talk a bit louder. Okay, so <clears throat> just before I go through this, it's probably worth just having a quick look at the file structure that's generated for us when AWS SAM scaffolds the app. Okay, so this is the base directory, and AWS SAM will ask you to name your project, which is pretty standard. Um, but we can see it breaks it down into pretty manageable folder structures. That's the other thing I really like about um, using a framework such as SAM. It at least takes some care of the basic decision making for you, such as creating your source directory and events directory and your tests, which, um, which I think is pretty easy to do as developers, but it's really not something we really enjoy doing. We want to start writing code as soon as we can. Um, source is pretty self-explanatory. 
over to manage.org under events. We can go to there and I think this is one of the really cool things about Sam I'm going to touch on shortly. But basically it just contains our events um, in JSON structure. Sample.yaml and that is basically that is basically um, our Lambda configuration at a runtime once it's deployed into the console. <coughs> I do have a couple of slides that I'll jump to shortly, which have some more information in them. But definitely.yaml contains everything we need for our Lambda at runtime. So, for example, a lot, there's a lot of configuration if you are to log into the AOS console and have a look. Um, once you're familiar with it, it's really quite simple to understand. There's things like your memory usage, how much memory you'd like to allocate to that lambda. And remember, you are charged by computer time, so I wouldn't suggest obviously giving it gigs, but just be mindful of how you configure this stuff up. Otherwise, doing the wrong thing will chew through your free tier pretty quickly. Um, there's not much to this template file at the moment, but it's just worth having a quick look at. So there we can see the timeout. Basically, the lambda will invoke, and if it's not able to complete the um, invocation within that time frame, it will just time out, which isn't great. So if you're doing things with um, databases or something more heavy, such as email, just be aware of this. You start getting timeout issues. That's the first place to start checking. Um, and then we have our resources block, which basically Sam will help generate for us, which is really nice. Um, as you can see, it's going to run time, which we specify at the start, and our handler. <coughs> so the handler is basically what function the console is going to call once it's been deployed. And I, in my projects, I've honestly left this pretty default, just because it keeps a bit of consistency amongst your Lambda projects, so uh, which I'll touch on shortly, but you can end up having quite a lot of these projects, and I think it's good to have an entry point that's standardized um, throughout your code bases. Um, there we have environment variables, which <coughs> is really useful. Uh, I haven't really found a better way to store environment variables, which is a little bit concerning. So anything that's been deployed, we are using uh, the AWS secrets, which is, um, does anyone know, not know what the AWS secrets is? Yeah, so basically it's just a secure way of storing environment variables. So you might have a password to a database and you don't really want to have that in your application. So you have a secrets manager and you can rotate this every 30 days. So is that just like able to scope your virtual environment? Yes, so, so it's another AWS service. Access to it yes, you, you have to define that um, and give permissions and you have to provide an encryption keys for them to be able to lock it. Um, but I believe there's two ways you can do it without going off on a tangent and it basically encrypts it so AWS support can't access this case. Um, but when I'm doing this locally, if I'm using a database, which something like a Postgres database, for example, I have just put my connection strings in my environment variables, and 
Normally we'd have that somewhere in a docking and bay farm, for example, but that is one of the challenges when you're not actually controlling the runtime of the dock container on the server itself. Um, there might be better ways to handle it. If you do find in the future, please let me know. Um, <coughs> and here we have the, the, the type. The type is pretty straightforward, so when it generates, when, like, when the full project generates, it's API. And a lot of your serverless applications inside AWS actually use is an API. It's not the only way of using it, but it's probably the way you're going to come across. There's some really, really good examples on creating serverless APIs. And <coughs> the, the path, that is simply just the route you're going to hit to access that API and the methods. So if anyone wondering why the method is get there, the idea behind that is that if you're going to write a serverless API, in my opinion, I think it's a good idea to have all of your HTTP methods as separate lambdas. So you might have a get resource, a post resource, put and delete. And what I would personally do is have each of those resources as a separate lambda functions. Uh, this is basically to avoid tying everything up together and making it more harder to work on. So the cool thing about that is you could go ahead and write it will get in .NET Core. Then you might have someone else in a team who really wants to try Go. They can write the post. Whether that's a good managerial decision is another thing, but some of the benefits that we do are able to see when we're using something like serverless. And serverless, um, sorry, I won't really go down this path too much, but how it can really work really well is with something like API Gateway. API Gateway handles basically our SSL and our certificates and our domain name. They can also handle authorization, so for example, API keys. You can map your routes in the API to your Lambda methods. So anything that goes through a GET, you get mapped to a GET request, um, which is handled by your Lambda for this example, which is a GET request. I'll just quickly touch on the AWS Lambda tools defaults there before we go into the function. As mentioned before, the function is the handler, where our, which is our entry point to Lambda. Uh, there's really not too much to see inside this, but if you are developing service applications at .NET Core, it is really, really important to just keep a note off because this might come back to bite you when you go to deploy. Um, which so this is a lot, a lot of this is very similar to what we saw in the template file. Again, it's really just the configuration we see in the Lambda once it's been deployed to the console. Um, but for me, I got bit by this. It wasn't a huge problem, but I couldn't deploy inside of GitLab using the SAM CLI. Uh, There's just a couple of problems I was running into. The first one is the um, 
Probe is installing the SAM CLI using pip inside a Docker container in GitLab and it just got a little bit convoluted and I ended up installing the .NET tools for Lambda and I was using that to deploy but the problem with that is it was actually using the AMS Lambda defaults and not the template YAML which we saw previously so if you do use .NET Core with AWS Lambda, just double check that. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to duplicate configuration and you may find yourself an easier way to deploy through GitLab, for example, than I did, which is why I went for the .NET tools. Um, a lot of that came down to deadlines, which is usually the kind of excuse we give as developers. Um, for the time being, it's working and hopefully in the future, I'll go back and look at the SAM. But what I did really know about the SAM CLI, it was so much easier to deploy, which I'll go through shortly. But you can do a guided deploy, which is really nice. Okay. Can everyone say that okay? Um, so this is the boilerplate that we get when we generate our Lambda and basically what this does is it just grabs the IP address and returns it to the client and you could hit this up through an API route. Um, I think this is quite a nice example of how to start, especially if you are going to be working with an API. So basically that is the function like here, yeah. that is what we're, that is our main method that we're going and that is defined in the template YAML. Again that is important and kind of part of the reason why I tend to leave it when it comes to generating projects. The reasoning is that I've changed a few bit things in here and here and suddenly it won't build. And unless you have a good understanding of how the template's working and the namespace to function, it's just kind of one of those things you can get stuck in a rabbit hole for an hour, which it's not really something I'd do. However, if you wish to change in your projects, go for it. Uh, for me, it wasn't really worth the hassle of trying to change all the handlers and everything later on. So I've just left it, again, to keep the consistency along the code bases. Um, but you'll find what works best for you. Um, there is simply just turning an API gateway response, which is what we talked about previously with the API gateway. And Just before I go ahead and invoke that, I just thought to show some of the CLI commands that we can use. Um, we've already had a look at init, validate, pretty self-explanatory. The ones that I've mostly used is the SAM init for new projects, uh, build, which you need to do, especially if you're using something like Core, which will go ahead and build the application before it spins up the Docker container. 
and the other one the icon singing is just local local is again pretty self-explanatory but a big part of how we develop the application locally which i'll show you just now and if we go to sound local we can see some more um, more command lines uh, the one i'll show you is just invoke which That's not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't downloaded the doc image in this. I thought I did last night when I was at work. <laughs> it did not finish before I had to leave. But so my apologies. That's bad demo luck. But basically, how long does an image take to spin up? Um, this one isn't too long because it's not too big. Um, it really depends on the internet connection though. Uh, if you've got half decent internet connection, I wouldn't expect it to take more than five minutes. It's pretty quick. Um, <clears throat> so basically, in folk, I, I do apologise that horribly failed. But in folk, will spin up the container and it'll run your application with a function, and then it'll just spin down. So this is a good example of how it could work in the actual console, because. At the end of the day, the serverless is just a Docker container that spins up without code and then executes the application and spins down. So what will happen is it goes through, it spins up, it will return the IP address and it spins down. The other option there is, as we saw, is serverless, sorry, <laughs> start API. And this is basically the same thing. The only difference really is that it doesn't spin down straight away. Um, this is really useful if you want to test your API up a little bit further, especially when it may be something like Postman or Command Line or even through your front-end application. Um, it's a little bit closer to how you might consume the API if it was to be through API Gateway, which <coughs> is really helpful. Um, but if you just want to test something and make sure the function itself works, I would just use invoke. And the other one we can see here is generate event, um, which, which is a lot, of what, which is a lot of what I've done when it comes to the lambdas. So I think events is the other predominantly thing that's used when it comes to lambdas and AWS. The first one is the APIs. So a lot of people making service APIs out there. And the other way that I think is a really brilliant use of using lambdas is through events. Um, the event that we'll mostly talk about today is SQS, which is just AWS's simple queue system, service, sorry. And it's really cool how it works, and the thing is there's events, so many events for all of their services. And, but basically, in this example, a message might land on a queue, you have an ordering application, and every time a sale is processed, you might want to send that customer a receipt. So you would put a message on the queue, and as soon as the message lands in the queue, the lambda will spin up and go ahead and process it. Um, which, if we draw back to traditional server architecture, 
I think this is pretty amazing because anyone who's worked with RabbitMQ or any other queuing system knows that you generally need to continuously poll the queue either on consistently or on intervals. Um, but with this, we can leave it dormant until our message lands in the queue, which is pretty amazing. Um, one of the things that is worth noticing, especially when you're using .NET Core, is the same would probably go for any strongly typed language such as Java. But with .NET Core, depending on the events and the kind of events you wish to be processing, you may need another NuGet package to download to actually process these events. Um, for example, if you're going to be processing SQS events, you need to have the SQS new package, which is pretty easy to find. You just jump on nuget.org and you search SQS Lambda and you just pull that in. But the reason for that is that we just need the type when we're passing it through the function handler. Um, Um, so, did I get that right? <laughs> okay, so this is a, some of the events that we can generate through AWS Sam, um, which again I think is a really another really good pro of using. <clears throat> the one that I'll look at today is SQS, um, but as you can see, it's a whole list. So if you're using S3. The example might be a user uploads a profile picture into a bucket and you have a lambda that takes the image and presses it and when anything lands in the bucket and puts it into another bucket. Um, it's really easy to generate events, which is... <clears throat> so the first thing I would usually do is enter that and it just gives you some help message. In this case, the only thing we can actually do with it is receive a message. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, I can't spell. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just coming to copy it before I embarrass myself anymore. Ooh. Okay, so this is an example of how the event might look. What I would normally do at this point is go ahead and copy the whole JSON object and I put that in a JSON file which goes in the events directory. Um, so basically, from my experience, all I've really had to know when it comes to generating these events is you want to look at the body. And most messages are only coming through um, any traditional application. Most of the time they're going to be the XML or JSON. Hopefully if everyone's like the JSON. But so the JSON body would go in there and we would parse that into our object when it comes through and go ahead and do whatever we need to do with that object. So I would usually go ahead and just copy it there, put it into the events. So this is what I put before, which is pretty straightforward. 
So when it comes to testing our Lambda with events via SQS or S3, um, remember the Lambda in this specific case is simply just a trigger. Um, when the action happens, we pass the event in and our Lambda will handle it. Um, there's a lot of examples of how this can be done, but to test your Lambda locally with that event you've written, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> So basically what we're doing here is we're just invoking our Lambda. We're passing an event flag to say that we'd like to um, pass the event. And we just pass the path to the actual event. If there is time, I will download the rest of that doc image and just show how it works. Okay, so just so you've you've got your service application, you're going with the case example you've been asked to develop um, a trigger. So if every email that lands in a queue, you want to send that customer some sort of email to let them know, and now you've got to go and deploy it. With service, um, a big part and a lot of the hairy problems come from the actual deployment, um, because again, it's really so much more different from anything we've experienced in the past. Um, it's not like deploying code onto a server or just updating a doc image. There's a little bit more that goes around it, especially with the roles. Um, the first thing you want to do if you're deploying from your local machine is to configure your AWS CLI. The AWS CLI is very straight, straightforward to configure. For anyone here that doesn't have it previously installed, um, plenty of resources online and then you just go ahead and configure it with your your access key and your secret key <clears throat> and if it's your first time um, deploying a setup I really really recommend you use the uh, dash G flag and that's a guided option and it's really nice just because it's going to take you through similar to what it did when we generated the initial project and what it does is just going to ask you some questions and walk you through and help you configure the deployment before it goes to the console. And for me, like I said previously, when we're using GitLab at work to deploy our lambdas into AWS, and I have gone with the .NET Lambda tools just because that was the solution that worked for me. Um, but you might find yourself with a solution that works with SAM. I would really recommend you use the SAM CLI to deploy it, just because it's a little bit easier and it's going to keep your GitLab pipelines a little bit cleaner, which at the end of the day is better for everyone. Yeah, the takeaway I think when developing service applications is keep them small. Um, the larger they are, the more time they are going to take to start up and it's going to be slower and cost you more money in the long run. And I think the thing that comes to mind when we talk about service applications is we can have, instead of having 10, we could double that amount and make them basically focused on the one problem they're solving, <clears throat> whether it's one taking get request, one taking post request, um, you might have different emails. You could go ahead and have many different queues which send out different emails. 
Um, I think there is a reason to anything. Um, for us, if we're sending emails, it just goes to the one queue because and because of maintenance, we are a small team. But I think it's really important to keep them focused and small. Um, and I think a lot of the confusion that comes with when you're developing service applications is it is a new concept. And I think we, well, especially myself, when it started, I was kind of, well, how do I develop a service application? It's really much the same concepts you would use when working with traditional servers. The thing that's different is how you would locally run the development host. You obviously don't have control over that. It's a matter of running that command or testing the console. But the same standard practices apply. Um, it's a little bit different because the serverless like boilerplate, it is quite straightforward. So you don't have things like dependency injection off the bat. Um, however, if you really want it, it's pretty straightforward to implement it in. And I think the, the last thing to touch on is I think a sprinkle of service works best. And what I mean by that is I don't think you should have to build your whole stack and everything in service. Work out where it works best for you and use serverless where you think is effective. I think there's some really good use cases for serverless. Um, one I saw recently was um, a consultant who works closely with AOS. They had developed a Chris Kringle application. Um, and basically, before he was running on EC2 instance and it was taking up power the whole year, but in reality, it was only being used for Christmas. So, servers in that case is really awesome. So, he was able to go from running an EC2 instance all year round to running servers. It was only used that time. And he was hosting the front end in, I think, Vue.js in an S3 bucket. And I think that is the really good use of service. Uh, the other one, which was developed by some people in Adelaide, was the the Twitter handle. You enter your desired Twitter handle, and off it goes, and they'll notify you once it's ready. <coughs> Something like that might not be used day in, day out, um, which is another good, really good use case for using service. And I think the other really good way of using service is if you have a scenario where you think you may need to scale horizontally and spin up a lot of instances of a service, like, sorry, instances of the application, service is a really good place to do that. The example is um, you have the application that you email receipts out and is it Black Friday comes along and you get you know, 50,000 emails in your queue. You want to be able to handle that really cleanly and efficiently. And you don't want to have to wait a couple of minutes a week to spin up more resources. You just want to fire off. And that's the really beautiful thing about serverless is AWS can manage it for you. And they'll manage how many invocations that need to be spun up to handle that load. So um, I haven't really done any load tests because I don't really see the point. And we're not currently at that point where we're having load problems. But you can process a lot of messages very quickly because you can just put up as many instances as needed. Um, <clears throat> I think the other thing that's really worth noting, if you are going to consider using a serverless just here and there, before you write any pieces of code, 
double check the the marketplace for Averse Lambda. There's some really good stuff on there. Um, again, I saw a quote on the internet that said the best Lambda is the one you don't have to write because it's at the end of the day, it's just more less code that your team needs to maintain and deploy and update, which is better for everyone. Um, I think that's the majority of the talk. Does anyone have any questions? Or? Can Sam simulate other types of resources besides lambdas? Like can you set up um, like DynamoDB locally to test your lambdas against? Not at this stage as far as I'm aware. I do see that being a bit of a common problem when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Um, but at this stage I'm to my understanding, Sam is simply for the serverless functions, although I hope in the future they do continue to extend that tool. But, yeah. um, what do you see the future of this compared to like WebAssembly or Wasi? Um, sorry, by that do you mean like being able to? Load a runtime into a browser. Uh, I'm not too familiar with WebAssembly. Are you? Are you okay. Um, just a side note as well. Um, each instance, can you multi thread on each instance, or is each instance just for one action? Um, I haven't really had too much experience with that either, so. No problem. so I, I yeah. Cool. Nice. Thank you, everyone. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or feedback, uh, come find me later. We'll have a chat. Cool. Thanks,